Lord, it is so joyful and so reassuring, so great to praise you and so great to know that we are children of yours. Oh, it's so awesome. Father, Father, be with the preacher now, Lord, as he preaches and teaches, Lord, that your words would come forth clear. Give all the people listening ears to hear that your word would have its purpose carried out in all the hearers' hearts and minds, Lord. For whether it be for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for understanding, Lord, that we would be built up according to your good, good purpose and will, Lord. Lord, we also take this moment to pray for those that are sick amongst us, Lord. Lord, we pray for your mercy as we know you are a gracious and merciful God and your comfort, Lord, and your healing hand to be upon them, Lord. Lord, I once again be glorified in the preaching and teaching of your word, be glorified in the lives of your people, and may, and may all we say and all we do, Lord, be pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good to have us all gathered together this morning, amen, have our Bibles in our hands, and uh, so thankful, as I say every week, amen, that uh, the Lord would never leave us here in our own thoughts, our own understandings. That is not, brethren, what we need by any stretch of the imagination, amen. We are seeing around us what happens when men follow their own thoughts, (laughs) when men follow their own understanding. Uh, What you see is what you get. And, uh, and it's an amazing thing to behold. And uh, I mean, it's gotten to the point, brethren, think of this for a moment, that uh, a man doesn't know if he's a man and a woman doesn't know if he's a woman. If he thinks he's a man, he can be a woman. If he's a woman, he thinks he can be a man. It cannot be, brethren. The Lord made two of the sexes, male and female, made he them. Amen. And uh, so uh, that doesn't, doesn't compute only in a fairy tale world. And one living that way, and uh, believe you me, there's a lot of fairy tales going on out there, amen? So it brings us all back, doesn't it, brethren, to God's Word, His Bible, the, the preserved words of God that do not change, because if it wasn't for Him saving us in the first place, amen, giving us His Spirit, giving us His Word, we would, brethren, before we think too much of ourselves, would probably be in the flow with them. Amen? What we've got to understand is grace, his mercy that he showed us and bestowed upon us. May we never become arrogant, pride-filled, and forget where we came from. Amen? And it's an amazing thing to consider when we think these things through. Well, certainly by the providence of God, by his good pleasure. Amen? We are gathered here this morning to start the new year, 2024, in the very beginnings of the verses of the book of First of Philippians. It is quite a stunning thing. In fact, as we kind of lay the, the land, if you will, it, these introductions sometimes are, are uh, we're going to fly 30,000 feet, and then we're going to, if you will, come back down as we go verse by verse through. But really, the, the landscape must be laid. There are themes and understandings that are in the Scripture here that keep coming out and popping out and exegetically speaking to us. 
And so we want to lay that groundwork this morning before we, we delve in. In fact, my wife saw the text, six verses. She goes, you're awfully optimistic there, Mike. Because it is something where you want to take some time. You want to lay it down. You want to spend some time in God's word, amen, instead of hop skipping through it and not really understanding. Because it is relevant. <laughs> as much as people don't like it, the word of God is relevant for us today, as relevant as it was for them in their time some 2,000 years ago. What's interesting about this particular book, it is indeed one of the, if you will, three what we would call prison letters. And the Spirit of God led Paul, amen, to write this letter during his God-ordained, and I want you to get a hold of this and understand this, his God-ordained incarceration at a prison in Rome in 63 AD. Keep that in mind, God-ordained incarceration. Sometimes we don't think about being put in prison as God-ordained, and here we see the Apostle Paul. It is indeed a God-ordained incarceration because God is going to fulfill his purposes in that. And this is what we see in the text. In fact, Paul speaks of this many times in the book of Philippians and in the other three, if you will, prison epistles. I want you to see this. Look at verse Number seven, again, we're going to kind of give ourselves a, a, a bird's eye view, a 30,000 foot view, and then we'll come back down. I want, but I want you to see these themes. Again, prison, God-ordained incarceration. Look at verse number seven there, if you would. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart as much both in my bonds and in, my, in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. Verse 7, he talks about his imprisonment, his bonds. He's in chains for the gospel. He's not done. Look at verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confidence by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So again, we see God's purposes in Paul's imprisonment. It's affecting the brethren. It's giving them boldness to preach giving them boldness to share the word of God and teach the word of God. He's not done there. Look at verse 16 again. He, he brings to mind again to the brethren. The one preached Christ of, of contention, not sincerity, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. There it is again, his chains. He's chained, he's under imprisonment, and Paul here again is going to divulge God's great work because of what God did to him by placing him there and incarcerating him. And brethren, is it, listen, it is in the shadow of Paul's imprisonment, in the shadow of the house arrest, the imprisonment where he's at, where this epistle gains its notoriety. It is known as the epistle of joy, the epistle of rejoicing, the epistle of gladness. And it's within the shadow of the prison where Paul is going to tell us He's going to report to the brethren and tell us to be joyful in the shadow and the silhouette of the prison. It is quite a stunning thing when you think about it. In fact, 18 times, again, we're laying the foundation, 18 times in four chapters. Can I say that again? 18 times in these four chapters. That's four and a half times per chapter. That's every six verses. In the silhouette of his imprisonment, he's telling the brethren to rejoice in the Lord our God. Amen? Many times people go to prison, they don't rejoice in that. 
Paul is rejoicing in his God-ordained incarceration. He's telling the brethren, it's a stunning thing. There's 104 verses, and it's stunning when you think every six verses. He's telling as he sits bound. He tells the assembled brethren in one way or another to rejoice, to be glad, to be joyful. Now let me define the word joy here in our text because we're, we're looking at that. That's the foundation for it. That word joy is a delight of the mind from the consideration of the present. So, brethren, wherever you are presently, rejoice in the Lord. Amen. This is the idea. It is not like the world's happiness. It's not the world's joy. It's the biblical joy. It's the God joy. It's the joy that only God can give. And the Lord Jesus Christ can give. Which then what? Our joy should not be dictated, although we're humans, I understand this. We have feelings. Sometimes our joy is affected by our circumstances. But the true biblical definition is that, if you, again, let me say that, it is the light of the mind from the consideration of the present. Listen, and the assured approaching possession of a good. So no matter what your circumstances are, you can trust in God that whatever he's doing in your current circumstances, he's going to bring it out for his good and yours whether it's tomorrow or the next day or later this afternoon. God himself is at work. In fact, this word joy again, like prison, shows up in this text over and over and over again. And I want you to see this again because, again, these are the themes. These are the, the overarching themes, if you will, of the text. Remember now in the silhouette in the shadow of prison, Paul says to have joy, this kind of biblical joy. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 there. Always in every prayer of mine uh, for you, all making request with joy. There it is again. There we're going to see it again over and over again. Look at verses, verse 18. And again, that word joy is eight times right in the first chapter. Eight times. So he's, again, drawing our attention to this biblical joy, stuff that you and I, brethren, sometimes wrestle and struggle with. Joy. Look at verse 18. Look what he says there. Again, eight times in the text, he uses this word. Look at verse 18. Uh, but what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. And again, brethren, eight times throughout the first chapter here and through the book itself, this thought is there. Look at verse 26. Again, just a little taste of where we're going. Look at verse number 26 there, if you would. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus for me by my coming to you again. Again, rejoice, rejoicing. Be filled with biblical joy in the light of where I'm at. In fact, I like John MacArthur said this. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. So in other words, what that means is it doesn't matter what our circumstances are at times. It doesn't matter what's taking place. If Christ the King is there, his residence is taken up there, we should indeed find joy in it some way, no matter what. In fact, brethren, again, another theme that we see very early on and very often, Paul fixes our gaze in our text on that which causes, that which causes, if you will here, the source, the spring upon which the fountain from which is joy and rejoicing emanates. And you and I should too, brethren, rejoice and emanate in this. What is it? Well, look at verse 5. Look at verse number 5. Again, we're laying the groundwork here of chapter 1. What is his joy? What is causing this wealth of joy to flow? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The gospel, the good news is why Paul is rejoicing. He's rejoicing as he knows that the gospel of Christ, when it is preached and the Holy Spirit takes it into the hearts of those who are lost, it goes in unabated. You understand this, that God will call. God will call. God will regenerate. God will indeed send the gospel message out into the hearts and minds of people. In fact, look at verse 12. Again, there's just these recurring themes. Verse number 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me, what happened to him? Well, we're going to look at that later on a little deeper. Which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the what? Of the gospel. There it is again, the gospel. Remember, he, as we've said a hundred thousand times, all through the book of Acts, into the book Mark 2. I mean, every book we preach through. It's the beeping light of the gospel. That which, brethren, is what? Good news. Why is it good news? Well, because all of us were lost. And those of us who now are saved were found by Christ. That's good news. Amen? It's an amazing thing to consider it. This is the theme. Let me just take you again. Because we're going to lay the groundwork here. Kind of the scene, if you will. Let me go, let's go back to when... The gospel first came to Philippi. You remember when we were preaching through the book of Acts, we went through this. Let us go look and see why is Paul rejoicing so much? Why does he have so much joy in the gospel? Well, let's turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. Let's just again lay this, the groundwork, the scene here. Paul here on his first missionary trip shows up here in Philippi. And I want you to see the results of the preaching of the gospel. And again, brethren, this is the power of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's why preachers, as I say almost every week, they get up and put on this dog and pony show and sparks fly out of the ceiling and cannons go off and all this stuff. That saves nobody, brethren. It's the power of the gospel. This is why when one is saved, you can rejoice. We rejoice together, brethren, because we know what God saved us from. And can I again remind us that as growing up, I was, well, a large portion of my life I spent in the IFB churches, Independent Fundamentalist Baptist churches. And one of the things that I see happen there, and even some good Reformed brethren that I know, they become very high-minded, very proud and arrogant, very forgetful, which Paul never did. Every time he preached, he reminded the people, this is what God saved me from. He was a murderer. He was killing Christians. He was doing all of these things. And yet, he never forgot it. God's mercy, God's grace that was bestowed upon him, not of any good that he has done, but of God himself. We must never, ever forget that. Look at Acts chapter 16. Look there, if you would. Why is Paul rejoicing? Look at verse number 9 there, if you would, just to lay again the groundwork where you remember this. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. So Paul's being called by God into the, into the region. Remember, we, we looked at this. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, surely gathering that the Lord called us to preach the gospel unto them. There it is. That's the theme. That's what we're looking for. I can't go into a place where there's a lost man and trick him. 
I can't go to a place and try and do fancy tricks and speak my own language and try and trick them. You can't do that. It's the gospel again, brethren, and what God does with it. It isn't the speaker and the preacher. It's the power of the message that counts, that works. Look at there, verse 4. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with straight course to the Smithic Maronia in the next day to Neapolis. And from thence to Philippi, there it is, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and the colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. What happened while they were abiding there certain days? We know if you go on verse, in, to verse number 14, look there. What happened? A certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things, of God, the, the things that were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized, her and her household, she besought us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house, abide there. She constrained us. So what happened? Paul arrives in Philippi, he's preaching the gospel, and first thing is Lydia gets saved. That is something to rejoice in, brethren. Believe you me, there was a lot of rejoicing. What is Jesus? What, what is said of the angels? When one repents, there's more rejoicing in heaven. Just think of that, brethren. The, the, the God's work as it goes forth, the rejoicing that takes place in one who repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. God's saving work at work. Look there, if you would now. We know if we continue on in the text, verses 16 through 18, we find Paul and Silas driving out the spirit of divination out of a young lady. And what happens? They, the, the young lady's following them along. He says, hey, these men are telling you the way of salvation. You remember, Paul rebukes her and stops her. Why? Because the devil's not going to preach the gospel. God's people are preaching the gospel. So he stops her, and what happens? Where does Paul go? What happens immediately? As soon as they realize that their money is gone, their way of making money, they get tossed where? Into the prison in Philippi. There they are again. There's There's Paul looking and wondering and just in amazement at what God is doing, even in the present. And what happens then, brethren? Oh, listen to this beautiful music to our ears. Look there, if you go a little farther along in chapter 16, look there at verse 29. Look there. The earthquake had happened. This jailer thought all the, all the uh, prisoners had escaped. And when you, back in those days, brethren, if the prisoner escaped, you were offed. Your life was ended. That was it. Look there, if you would, at verse 29. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a glorious question. That's an eternal question there, brethren. That's one that all of us have to ask. What must I do to be saved? Do I get baptized? Do I crawl the stairs at the Vatican? What do I do? What must I do to be saved? Do I flog myself? What do I do? I'm glad you asked. Because the Bible answers it right here. There's nothing, brother, and there's no work that you can do. You can't be good enough. Look what he says. There, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Bible says, and they said, uh, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him their ideas. They spake unto him great stories. They spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And they took him the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and was baptized he and all his straightway. In other words, what happened in Philippi? Lydia gets saved. Then there, a divination of spirit is driven out. 
And God ordained, an incar- again, the incarceration of Paul. Into the jail he goes. And not only into the jail, but into the inner. If you go there, you remember, brother. And if you go back and look at our sermons through the book of Acts. He didn't just go into prison. He was locked tight down, him and Silas, in the inner prison. Where God's lost sheep was. The Philippian jailer. Whom God saved. Through the events of taking Paul and putting him there and having him rely upon the gospel. It is the effectual power of the gospel, advanced and unabated into the lives of God's lost sheep. Whether they're in a prison, Howard can relate, whether you're in jail, whether you're in a prison, it doesn't matter where you are. Or if you're in the palace, the gospel will find its way there, brethren. It's a stunning thing, and we're going to see that. Again, Paul gives God the glory for his imprisonment here in Rome because even his bonds, are they go all the way into the palace, he says, and we'll look at that, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. Whether you're in a prison, a jailhouse, or whether you're in the palace in the highest seat of the land, God and his gospel will seek you, and he will indeed draw you and save you. You are a lost sheep when that happens. You just get found when that happens. Amen? Wherever you are. It's a stunning thing. So this really is what causes this joy of Paul's. To gush forth, if you will, from the depths of his inner man. And again, this is a man that we've looked at. He loved the church of God. And what is the church? This building? Uh, can, Can I get somebody to say, no, it's not the building? It's not. It's you. It's me. It's those of us who are saved. We could be meeting in my basement. We could be meeting in your basement, which we might be someday. But brethren, that's not the church. The church is the blood-bought saints of Christ. You and me, if you're saved this morning, and I pray if you're not, that you will be. Amen? Amen? Stunning. Unbelievable. Glorious. I've been, you know, the Lord saved me almost 40 years. Look at these young men sitting over here. (laughs) You know, I used to look like you guys. Now look what you're looking forward to. Do you think about it, brothers? Think about it, brethren. Oh, my. 30, almost 40 years of seeing God's great work. And you know what? Our church just saw it again. Just saw it again. God himself. And when you don't know, God knows. He knows. Amen? It's a glorious thing. Oh, I I just get excited. Again, 40 years of looking back and seeing God's faithfulness to me. Can you imagine that he would bless me with a family like he blessed me with? I mean, a high school dropout. Brothers, think of it. I wasn't in jail, but I should have been. I just never got caught. (laughs) Never got caught. You take a man like that and save such a man, such a wretch as myself, and he he would raise one up who used to make fun of pastors and turn them into one. Stunning, isn't it? Do you see how personal this, this is? A, this is a personal thing. In fact, Paul, when he writes this letter, again, one of the overarching themes is you, 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 ye, and they. It's a personal thing with him. They are his friends in the Lord. And it's really quite an amazing thing. He rejoices in it. 
He rejoices over and over and over again. In fact, this Christ-like affection he reveals in chapter 1 there. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number, well, I, I read verse 7 already, but look where he tells them where they're at. Even, verse 7, even it is meet for me to think of, think this uh, of you all, because I have you where in my heart, in much in these bonds, he says. His inner man is flowing with joy because of the work the gospel is accomplishing on those brothers in Philippi. Look what he says there. And both my bonds and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You're all partakers of my grace. Look at verse 8. For God is my record. He calls God. You know, when you say, I, I, do you swear to tell the whole truth? Nothing but the truth will help me, God. People say you shouldn't take, shouldn't take an oath. Yeah, yeah, you should. Paul did it all the time. He called God as his witness. If you're going to tell the truth, calls him, he calls God as his witness. And look at what he says. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels and the inward affections of Jesus Christ. This is a man who loved those brothers. This is a man who preached the gospel, went to prison there, and many were saved because of it, and the church now has grown. It's a stunning thing to watch. One man gets thrown in prison, preaches the gospel, and the church takes off from there. Isn't it amazing? You know, men couldn't do that. Men couldn't make that up, but God does. This is how God works. This is how he operates. Again, I'll show you great things you don't know, because we don't know. But God knows for sure. Now, let me just say again, this has taken a while to lay the groundwork, brother. But I want you to see the historical relevance and then the today's relevance of it for us. We don't get up here and act like these are some old letters. Like some, well, a lot of preachers say that now. These old letters. <laughs> you know, these old things, they have no relevance to us. That's old days. No, no, brother, this is sound days. It's not old days, it's good days. It's new days. Because the word of God is sharper. It's active. Sharper than a double-edged sword. Able to divide soul and spirit. Listen, bone and marrow. Even the thoughts, brethren, and the intents of our hearts this morning. That's the power of the word of God. Again, that's why I always say, the pastor doesn't know where you're at. Nope. Howard, the other elder, doesn't know where you're at. If Dean, when he gets back from India and his family, when he's here, he's not going to know where you're at. But the Spirit of God knows. He is powerful. He knows. Even your thoughts this morning. What you're thinking about me. How about that? Hopefully it's all good thoughts. Amen? No, we hope your thoughts are on the Lord. Thinking about him. So within these four chapters, and again, we're, we're leading up here. You're right, honey, that, well, she's not here right now, but I was very optimistic. It's within, within the silhouette of these truths that we are talking about here this morning that the Holy Ghost places, if you will. He brackets, he parenthesizes each chapter, each of the four chapters. And within those four chapters, and again, brother, this is where all this comes to. It all comes to the relevance for you and I today. All of it. In chapter 1. Chapter 1 is about, as we're going to see as we get started here. Chapter 1 is about our Christian friendships. Christian friendships. Do you have a Christian friendship? I pray you do. Chapter 2. The overarching, if you will, theme of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians is our Christian living. How we live. 
how we are to be different than the world, how God has set us apart. He's made us holy. We're not to look like them, smell like them, or be like them. Unfortunately today, again, many churches teach that you don't have to change. Well, I can tell you right now, if you don't change, you've never been saved. Never. It hasn't happened. You cannot be regenerated and made new in the Lord Jesus Christ and not change. Do I struggle with sin? I don't know. I do. Unless you're different than me, which you might be. I might be the odd man out. Do I still struggle with sin? Yes. Is God working on me? Yes. Is he working through me and you? Yes. Yes. Oh, brothers. Again, let us not be too harsh. Amen. Let us not be too harsh. It's an amazing thing here. Finally, chapter 4, our Christian peace. Peace that only he can give. Chapter 3, I missed our righteousness. It's our righteousness. It's Christian righteousness, not because of what we've done, but because of what? Because of what Christ has done. That's really how the chapters and the book, as it all comes together for us this morning, those are the high-hitting themes, if you will, of the book, which with many more down in the, in, the, in the verses as we're going to see here as we begin verse number one there. Let us read that together this morning. Look at Philippians chapter one, verse number one. Paul and Timotheus, the servants. I want you to get a hold of that word. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see why he calls himself a servant, a bond slave, literally. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. Now, brethren, it's quite an amazing thing. As I said before, Paul and his other three prison epistles, if you will, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, he greets the brethren by calling himself the apostle. And that is merit, and that has some, there are some reasons why he did that. But not here. He does not introduce himself. He does not greet the brethren in the letter at all as the apostle, but rather as servants. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. Now there's something, brethren, we should all grasp and get a hold of in our own hearts and our own lives. To be a servant. And we're going to see what all that means. That word servant literally means doulos. It's bond slaves of Christ. It's an it's a mark of ownership, brethren. And again, this is the thing as we consider ourselves in our Christian lives. Do people see that we're owned by Christ? Do we bear his marks? Or do we bear our own marks in the world? Paul is saying here, I'm a bond slave. And many of you who are farmers, ranchers, many of you, well, some of us are. I, I worked on a a ranch for a little while, and then they kicked me off there when they found out I was a city slicker and couldn't handle it. But you know what, what ranchers do, cattle ranchers? What do they do? They, every spring, their calves are born, and they heat this thing up. And you know what it's called? It's called the branding iron. And you know what they do? They find a little patch on the keister iron end right here, and they, they heat that thing up, and they shh, and they brand that, cow, that calf. Why? Because it's a mark of ownership. And this is what Paul is saying. 
It is an attitude. It is a, an attitude of the heart and mind, if you will. In other words, when he's marking himself with Christ, showing that he's owned by Christ, he's saying he removes any thought of neutrality. Now you understand in Rome there were 50 million slaves. What makes Paul different? What makes him different? Well, again, it's the marks of Christ upon his life shining brightly within the world that he lives in. He doesn't look like them. He doesn't act like them. He doesn't smell like them. He doesn't write like them. Well, we could go on and on. Why? Because he's owned by Christ. He's a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does this do for us? It establishes, brethren, a proper biblical disposition in our own hearts and our own minds. That's what it does. It produces in you and I a proper disposition. Do not think too highly of yourself. Paul could have called himself an apostle. He did that. But he doesn't do it here. Why? Because of another one of the themes of our letter. It is indeed a changing of the mind, a changing of the heart, if you will. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Look here, if you will. Again, it establishes a proper biblical disposition in one's heart and one's mind. Look at verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was Christ Jesus? He was a servant. He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. So Paul here is telling the brethren, as Christ, we should all have this mind that we should be servants of Christ, slaves, do loss. Yes, Christ owns you if you are saved here. He bought you with what? With his precious blood. He paid the penalty that you could never pay and I could never pay. It's too much. Even, brethren, if you think, we live in a religious society, don't we? Oh, yes, very much. We think that God looks at us and he says, well, looks like Mike, you know, his good deeds are going to outweigh his bad deeds, so we're going to let him into heaven. No way, brethren. Can I illustrate it for you? Have you broken the law of God? I have. <laughs> have you ever lied? I have. You ever lusted after someone? I have. You ever took the Lord's name in vain? I have. Well, that's three, and immediately all of those Ten Commandments, if I laid them out there, we have broken them one way or another. Now, here's the gist of it. This is what religion doesn't tell you. Now, even if you never do it again, if I never ever, and I pray I don't, take the name of the Lord in vain, or that I lie, if I never do it again, guess what, brethren? Never keeping the law perfectly doesn't make up for what I've already done. I don't get extra credit. All I've done is kept the law. That's what it requires of me. Therefore, you can never make it up. Do you understand? He who stands in the gap is the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is perfect. It was his righteousness is imputed to you through the gospel. Brothers, this is so important. People die every day thinking they're going into heaven because of how good they are. It is a lie from the deepest, darkest pit of hell that's ever been belched. It's a stunning thing to watch. Paul here, of course, is 
speaking to us of having this mind of Christ, being a servant. It establishes some things in the heart. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2 again, just as we lay this out. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you. Again, he is a servant. Here comes Timotheus. Paul said that in verse number 1 of chapter 1. Shortly unto you, that I may be of, of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that be something, brothers, sisters? Somebody came and said, hey, I'm, I'm like-minded like Paul. I think like Paul does. He's a good example as he follows Christ, follow me, he says. But the idea here is having a Christ-like mind. Not as, the, not as the Pentecostals say it, but as the biblical teaches it. Thinking like him. When I look at something, do, how do I view it? How do I think about it? What do I do when I think about it? Is my mind like Christ? Is my mind like Paul's? Is the Bible the center portion that helps me to make my decisions? Whether I should do this or do that, how my view should be on this or that, it does, and it should. Your view on killing children should be different than the world's view on killing children. Why? Well, some of them are just good people, but because of what God says about it. That's why my mind is different. That's why I think children are a blessing of the Lord, because he said they are. That's why I think marriage is between one man and one woman. Amen. That's it. Brothers, it wasn't Adam and Steve, and I don't mean to say that in an unholy way. It was Adam and Eve who he created to become as one and marry them one another. Why? Because God ordained it. God created marriage. God created the family. God created the world. God created all of these things. Therefore, my mind should be just like his. Not in an unholy... Again, Howard could get up and tell us about the Pentecostal view of that verse. But that's not it. Our mind is made like Christ through his word. And when his word addresses, people say God's word doesn't address it. addresses it all the time. Jesus never addressed marriage. Yeah, he did in Matthew chapter 19, right? He quotes God back in Genesis. He made them male and female, and he brought them together. <laughs> yeah, Jesus speaks a lot about marriage between one man and a woman. Don't ever say he doesn't. Well, he's the author of the scripture anyway, but he purposely spoke it. It's a stunning thing. In fact, again, Paul's ownership of Christ. Christ is his owner. I want you to see this. Christ, or Paul, bared in his body the marks, the ownership, the branding of Christ. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 6. Look there if you would just quickly, right at the end. Listen to what he says. Galatians chapter 6. This again is he said, I am a servant, I am a doulos, I am a bond slave of Christ. He owns me. Look at verse 17. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. How was Paul stamped? with Christ. How many times was Paul flogged? Five times, at least, that we know he recorded. How many times was he beaten with rods? Three times that is recorded, for sure. Now, when you're thinking about a flogging, okay, now what they would do is, you were, by, under the law, under the Jewish law, you could, you could hit someone 40 times. If you went over 40, you were then flogged. 
So what they would do is, you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He said, I was flogged five times, 40 minus one. <laughs> Somebody was counting one, two, three. Hey, we're getting close, four, five. Because the man who was flogging him didn't want to be flogged. It's amazing. Paul had the marks of Christ. Why? Because of his undying loyalty. His undying loyalty to his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. His un unrelenting preaching and believing in Christ. Therefore, the world hated him. And they marked him out as one who was indeed a servant of Christ. I like what one pastor said. To be a slave of Christ is to possess liberty that no one else can own. Think of that for a moment. To be a slave of Christ is to possess liberty that no one else can own. Paul concluded his brilliant apostleship in a dungeon. You remember this. Who was with him when he was in his dungeon? Nobody. <laughs> I mean, all his friends had left. He goes, hey, tell Mark to bring, some, bring the scriptures here to me. I've got to finish a couple of these up before, before uh, you know, the, the sword takes my head off. Stunning thing. The pastor continued, he was prompted to heaven, or promoted to heaven by a Roman guillotine, a thumbnail sketch of the former Saul of Tarsus, who was sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ, his master. Think of that, brother, the work that God did in Paul's life right there. Boy, are we... Uh, we're coming up on noon already. Well, let's at least finish the other part of verse number one, shall we? I wish my wife was in here. She could point her finger at me and laugh. Look at verse number one there. So many things. Paul and Timotheus, the servants, the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? All the saints. All the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Paul wrote, brethren, to all the saints. And again, this is such an important thing for us to understand. He wrote to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't put that in there just for no reason. That is indeed their spiritual address. And if you're in Christ today, that's your spiritual address. <laughs> but further on, he says, to the saints who are at Philippi, which is their earthly address. So in other words... There are saints wandering around on the earth. <laughs> and it's not because I've done some great miracle or that the saint has, you know, gone down and, I mean, think of your local thought process in this. Because I touched a relic, because it touched me, or whatever it might be. The convoluted understanding of what a saint is. Saints are people who by God, by his grace, has set apart and sanctified. That's a saint. Does it mean we're perfect? No, but it's what God has done to us. He has set us apart. He's justified us. He's made us holy through the imputed meritorious work of Christ. That's what makes you a saint. Not me drinking Mary's breast milk, which recently, and I don't want that to sound, please. But somebody was just sainted because they claimed that. No, you're a saint because of the meritorious work of Christ imputed to you by the Father. That's what makes you a saint. In fact, Christians are called saints 62 times in the New Testament. They are, marked, they are indeed marked by God as those who have been born again from above. 
That's who a saint is. Okay, go look in the scriptures. Even the Old Testament, saint, saint, saint. They were people that God saved and set apart. Excuse me, even in the Old Testament. That's a saint. It isn't because you walk around like this and you're holier than everyone else. We're all sinners. Saved by grace. That's what makes you a saint. Makes me a saint. He also wrote to the bishops, to the elders who were in Christ Jesus, the overseers at Philippi, those whom God had raised up there in that church to be preachers and to be those who are to have the oversight over your spiritual well-being. Unfortunately, brethren, that is a lost art within the church. We live in a, in a society in a, in a good, I, I love my independence. I'm glad that we are, you know, we have independence here. But you can't carry that over always into everything. And the church has been abused and used in that area. If someone doesn't like what the pastor says or somebody doesn't like what the pastor tells them to do, they go, like I said last Sunday, they go church shopping down the street over here. No. That's not something I should do or you should do. You leave a church, as I said last week, when the pastor goes down the toilet, when the church goes down the toilet, when it turns away from the things of God. Mm -hmm. That's when you leave a church. Otherwise, you pray for the church and you want to be a part of the church. Amen. As I said last week, our relationships are formed in the trenches and the hard things and the hard work. He wrote to the bishops, those who are to have spiritual oversight over the saints. He wrote to the deacons, literally waiters of tables. Brother Keith, uh, Brother Mark, our deacons here. That's you. The elders are me and Howard and Dean. The deacons are, uh, uh, are the men who do these things. Listen, waiters of tables. Those who run errands with dust beneath their feet. That's the definition of a deacon. Acts chapter 6, verse number 1. They help us. They help you, and they take care of us, and they take care of you. This is exactly what God has designed it to be. Now, it's clear that the church had grown since Paul's first visit. He visited Philippi three times. This was after his first visit, so he's writing because he wants to make sure, brethren, listen, that the church is in good order. Good order. A church that has elders and deacons. That's good order. That's biblical order. Amen? That's the way it should be. And so Paul writes to them in order to make sure that they have good order. All right. Let us read verse number two. I almost said we're almost done. We are almost done. Look at verse number two. I want to close with this. Grace be unto you and peace. That's what Paul is saying to all the saints, to the bishops and to the deacons, to the elders. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement he does. He, he gives them here really his familiar greeting. And again, brethren, this is what's so interesting about this letter is that there are some things that flow through that we see, and there are some other things like he addressed himself here. But he says, he gives him this familiar greeting of grace and peace from our God and Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace, as we close, brethren, speaks of bidding God's unmerited favor and kindness upon them. Peace, 
was the common way that Jews greeted one another. Shalom. Have you heard that? Shalom. That, that's what this means. He's, he's speaking to Greeks and to Jews. It's, it's, he's touching both of them in the way he addresses it. Shalom, brother. That's, that's not so bad. Shalom. Peace. The God of peace. May it be upon you. This is what he's speaking and praying unto them. Because that is the result of receiving from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the sole source of our peace and grace. He's the sole source. Let me show you this, and we've got to close. Brethren, do you know the peace we're talking about is a peace that Jesus spoke of when he told his disciples, remember, we don't have time to go look there, but he said unto them, I'll give you my peace. Not as the world gives, but as I give. So it's different. It's different than the world. This peace is different. It's shalom. It is a different kind of peace. In fact, we understand from the scriptures that it is important that we have peace, really, and as we're going to see in these scriptures here, peace with God. Brethren, that is first and foremost. You must have peace with God. Look at Romans chapter 5. Look there. Let me just read that to you there, brethren, quickly. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse number 1. Again, we, we can have peace with God. How does this happen? How does one have peace with God? Which again is first and foremost. Shalom with God. Look at verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ. This is where we find peace with God. We can have peace, brethren. That's first and foremost. But secondly, we can have peace with men. And I'll give you the verse. There's lots of them, but I'll give you the one I was going to read. Proverbs 16, verse number 7. We can have peace with men. Peace with God through Christ. Peace with men. And finally, as Paul writes here in the book of Philippians, we can have peace within ourselves. Godly peace within ourselves. <laughs> you know, what does Isaiah say? Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Why? Because they're searching for it outside of the biblical godly peace. They're searching the things of the world to bring them peace, and it will never come. It comes through Christ. The kind of peace that men really need can only come through him. But again, brethren, as I say, we can have peace within ourselves. And I want you to see Philippians quickly, and we'll close here with this. Look there, if you would, at Philippians chapter 4. Peace within oneself. Look at here. Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse number 6. Be careful for nothing. That word literally means be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds. Do you see that there again? There, we need some stability. We need someone to keep us right. If we're not kept right, we will go with them. Look what it says there. Hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Look at verse 8. You want some application this morning, brethren? As I always say, the application is in the text many, many times. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, 
Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good, of good report. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard, boy, there's some teaching there, and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Brethren, we can have inner peace. But it comes through, first, a right relationship with God, having peace with him first. And then as we learn and we grow, as we study the scriptures, he is the one then who gives us inner peace. Your world can be a mess. And believe you me, I always tell people, it's easier said than done. A lot of times when people come to me or to one of the elders in the church, their life is such a mess. It's such a disaster. But they're living in this storm. And how do you then help them to get out of that storm? It's easier when you're not in the storm to say, think on these things, do this, do that. We should do that. But brethren, it is sometimes very difficult for people to do that. Therefore, the elders, the pastors, that's one of the reasons we're here, to help you. And sometimes you help us. Because sometimes, as we have seen over the last year, some of those pastors' lives aren't in good order either. It's a stunning thing to behold. But really, this is Paul's purpose in writing this letter to us. There's many more that we're going to see as we study along. Let me just say this if I can, and we'll close. This is true peace. This is biblical peace that can flow from only God, brethren. A stark contrast to the world's fleeting peace. What a, fleeting, you know what that word means? It's, it's very temporary and it's gone. When one is saved, when one is in the Lord Jesus Christ, like Paul, that's what brought him great joy. That's what made him, that joy cascaded because he knew and never forgot. Can I say it again? He never forgot where he came from. What God saved him from brought him peace with God. And then out from that flowed everything else. Peace with men, peace within himself. And brethren, it's the same for you and I. This really is the relevant, needful thing for us today. We live in a world, unfortunately. Well, no, I'm not, let me take that back. Fortunately, fortunately, because God has saved us for such a time as this. We, we live in a time when God has ordained us to live here. And he saved you in a time which he has saved you for to be preachers and ministers of the gospel so that others can have this peace. They can have peace with God, they can have peace with men, and they can have peace that they're looking for. And if you don't think so, brethren, call up the local pharmacy shop. Call them up. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just saying, most people can't get through the day without popping something. That's the truth. And I get it. I'm not saying some people need that. You don't want them not popping it. <laughs> we had a guy here, and not to get on in stories, but we had a guy here who was very sound in the faith. And he felt so good, he decided he was going to stop taking his stuff. That was a bad idea. 
<laughs> a very bad idea. Yep. What I'm saying is, brethren, we can have the peace of God through Christ Jesus in our homes, in our families. Can I say this, brethren? And I'm going to stop. I know. I keep saying it. Brethren, listen. One of the things, one of the things that, that uh, we, we see in Scripture over and over again is that fathers. I watched a, a video last night, a YouTube thing. And these young kids are in prison. They're, 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 they're 12 years old. 10, they've killed people. They're murderers sitting in a prison, right? And you want to know what they kept saying? My father was nowhere to be found. What does the world tell us today? We don't need fathers. Yes, we do. Ask them. Not only do we need fathers, we need godly fathers. Men of faith. Men who will lead in their homes. Men who will watch over their children and watch over their families. Yeah, that, I know that sounds old-fashioned, but that's what we need. As the family goes, brethren, so goes the nation. And we are seeing what they've done purposely, attacking the things of God. Marriage, the family, and the church. All three of them. <laughs> All simultaneously. So let us pray as we close with prayer. Let us pray for, in our own fellowship here, and in many other good Bible-believing churches, for good families, good fathers, brothers and sisters who will submit to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we understand the depth of your word. We understand the needfulness of it. I certainly do. I've seen it, and I know it would happen to me because in any one of us, we're sheep. God calls us sheep for a reason. Many traits of a sheep that we all portray, that we all have in us. Sometimes we're not very smart. We're helpless. We're needy. And I'm grateful for that. And that's where our great shepherd comes, comes in. Our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect shepherd. God in the flesh. Who leads his sheep into the pasture. He makes them to lie down beside still water because sheep won't drink running water. <laughs> it's a stunning thing. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort us as sheep. They, of course, were utensils for protection to protect the sheep, but also to examine them as they came in from the pasture in the day. They would go through the sheep gate and they would hold out that rod and the sheep would have to bend down underneath to get in and they would examine them closely for any wounds. And we have wounds. Some of us have deep wounds. And we need the Good Shepherd to protect us and to heal us. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us here as orphans. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. 
He illuminates our minds and our hearts to these truths. Father, may we trust in you. Father, we pray this morning as we finish up here for our families, our families here. Pray for our husbands, our fathers. I pray, Lord, that we, by the work of the Holy Spirit, would be good leaders in our homes. All of us are much like our father, Adam, our representative, who gets a little lazy at times. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. Father, will you help us to be good, godly fathers, good, godly husbands, love our wives as Christ loved the church. Father, will you be with our wives that they would indeed aspire to be, Proverbs 31, women, godly women, women who love their husbands. And you know what, men, if we would treat our wives as Christ loved the church and treat them like we're supposed to, they would they gladly submit and they, they gladly love us with a cheerful heart. It's when we're harsh and loving to them causes a lot of bad things to happen in the home. Help us, Father, to be godly men. Father, I pray for our children that as they are brought up in the admonition of the Lord, that you would save them. It's not our, we can't do it. It is your work, but we are part of that work. We try to be faithful in the things that we've been called to do as mothers and fathers, as parents. So, Father, we pray for them. We pray, I pray for the young singles that are in our church this morning. Oh, Father, what a life that is. I've, I've seen it with my own children, my older ones. Father, if the young men are desiring to be married, may you send them a godly wife. Yes, a crown, the Bible says, a glorious gift from the Lord. I pray for these young men that you would do that for them if they so desire. Some, some are just designed to be single, and, but that's not most of us. Father, I pray, for, I pray for the young ladies in our church as well, a blessing upon them that you would indeed bring to them a godly man, godly husband, one who will lead, one who, who will be firm in the home and be a good leader. Father, we pray for them. I pray for our widows amongst us. We have some. We pray for them. and Father, we ask your blessing upon them and that we might help them and watch over. Pray for our grandchildren. <laughs> Boy, look at this, brother. We could pray for a long time. There's so many things. We pray for our grandchildren here as well. The, the generation, two generations now behind Behind me, anyway, my grandchildren, we pray for them, that you would draw them, that you would regenerate them, that you would save them, that they would indeed at some point in earthly time believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And now, Father, I pray as we gather around the Lord's table, we will again be reminded of what you've done for us. Sinners lost and on their way to a devil's hell, just like Paul. And you interceded. You sought us out. You drew us. 
You saved us. You made us new. You put in as well as Ezekiel said. That's what John 3 is talking about, Ezekiel 26. That's, it's very simple, Ezekiel 36. You washed us. You gave us a new heart. We were born again from above. Father, we pray that. We pray as Paul did for the lost sheep of Israel. It was his heart's desire and his prayer that they might be saved. And we pray that for our day, for the lost sheep, that they might be saved. We thank you now and pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.